Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, Antioch. Wherever you are right now, I hope you're doing well, and I'm so glad that you're joining us for worship today. Uh, this morning, we are entering the season of Epiphany, which, if you're new to the church calendar, is probably a season you don't know much about. So, quick overview. Epiphany means literally to reveal or to make known. And it's a season that's all about the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. It's about the story of God making himself known to us in the person of Christ. Um, There are three particular stories in the life of Jesus that have traditionally marked the season of Epiphany for Christians. The first is the story of the Magi who follow the star and come to worship the Christ child. The second is the story of Jesus' baptism, and the third is the story of Jesus turning water into wine. So three pretty well-known Bible stories, and each one provides us with another epiphany, another insight into who Jesus really is and what God is really like. So for the next six weeks until the beginning of Lent, we're going to be looking at these revelatory moments in the life of Christ and inviting the Holy Spirit to help us see the real Jesus more clearly than ever before. So this morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, and I'm going to invite you to join me on a journey inward today, an exploration of some of the deepest parts of your being. And specifically, we're going to be wrestling with issues of identity. Like, who are you, really? Who is the real you? And whose decision is that anyway, and why does it matter? Um, I'll just say that for me personally, God has used this story from Jesus' life to give me some of my most important epiphanies about who God is and who I am. And over the past several years, I've found myself continually returning to this account in the Gospels and finding new life in it. So I hope I can share some of that with you um, today. So in sociology, there's a theory called social identity. And social identity is the idea that each of us has a self-concept, which is the collection of beliefs that we hold about ourselves. And our self-concept is significantly shaped by the social groups to which we belong. It's our social identity, the way we see ourselves as informed by the social groups we identify with. So your social identity could be based on any grouping of people you belong to. It could be your family of origin, your race or ethnicity, your professional career, your political persuasion, your religion, anything. Any grouping of people you belong to anything that gives you a sense of these are my people. That is part of your social identity. Now it's a simple idea, but it can get kind of confusing because it's possible to technically belong to a certain social group without it being a big part of your identity. So sociologists use the terms high identifying and low identifying to describe how strongly someone's concept of self 
is based on their social group. So for example, I have one friend who's Asian American and that's a very big part of his identity. The way he sees the world and experiences life is from a uniquely Asian American perspective. It's who he belongs to, it's the culture he's been shaped by, it's an integral part of who he is. So he is a high identifying Asian American. And then I have another friend who's also Asian American, but it's just not that big of a deal to her. It's not a huge part of her identity. She would say, yeah, it happens to be kind of my racial background or where my grandparents moved here from, but it's not who I am. So she would be a low identifying Asian American. So the question in that scenario isn't obviously who's right or who's wrong. The question is, how do we figure out who we really are? Because it seems like there are all kinds of identities out there that are competing for us. So oftentimes when a new professional or college sports stadium is built, there's a competition among corporate sponsors for who gets the naming rights for the new facility. So that's how it, you end up with a T-Mobile park or a Moda Center or a research stadium. Those companies have naming rights. They get to decide what that stadium is called. So the question is, who has the naming rights to your soul? Who gets to decide your identity? Who gets to name you? Whose voice are you actually listening to? And I think that even Jesus himself is no stranger to this struggle. At one point, he asks Peter, who do people say I am? And who do you say I am? Jesus knows that there's lots of varying opinions about him out there. People are thinking things. People are saying things. They have expectations for him. They're trying to figure out which group he belongs to. They're trying to name him. Jesus navigated his entire life knowing that the Father had said one thing about him and that people were saying another thing about him. But what we see in Jesus was the ability to live out of his true identity and not get hijacked by all the other competing identities people wanted to assign to him. So I want to focus in on what happens when Jesus is baptized and comes up out of the water. Specifically, we'll look at Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 10. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So this is a moment where Jesus is publicly named by his Father. He receives his identity both in relationship to God, but also in his relationship to us in our humanity. So this word comes from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. So the first thing to notice here is that Jesus really hasn't done anything yet. And especially the way Mark tells this story, this is the first 
event in Jesus' life. He hasn't performed any miracles or given any signs. He hasn't forgiven any sins or given any teachings. And yet his father speaks these words of love and affirmation over his son. So when Jesus' identity is given to him, it's not based on anything he's done or accomplished. The name God gives him is Son. The Father imparts an identity to Jesus that is based on their relationship. See, you can't be a son without having a father. And you can't be a father without having a child. And so God also identifies himself in relationship to his son. And then we see the spirit descending like a dove and the third person of the Trinity as the one who mediates the love between the father and the son. So back to social identity, the idea that who we are is based on who we belong to. What's happening here is that Jesus is being given a social identity based on the Father's love for him. Or you might say, he is a high-identifying son. And that God is a high-identifying father. Like, these aren't just various hats, hats that they wear. These are the truest things about them. And so the father publicly names Jesus as his beloved son. And then he goes on to say, with whom I am well pleased. When you think about that phrase, with you I am well pleased, where does your mind go? When you think back on your childhood, when did you experience someone being pleased with you? For most of us, it was usually when we accomplished something. When we brought home a good report card, when we made the big play, when we did the right thing, or when we succeeded at whatever was most important. Those were the moments that we sensed the pleasure of our parents, teachers, coaches, etc. You probably have a few of those moments you can remember from your life when someone told you how pleased they were with you. But most likely what you really remember is all the times someone wasn't pleased with you the times that you failed, the times you were a disappointment, the times you screwed up. That's the stuff that tends to stick in our memories. And again, that no notice that all of these moments, whether we were affirmed or scolded, were based on our performance or our accomplishments or our behavior. If we did well and lived up to expectations, then people were pleased with us. And when we came up short and let people down, they were displeased with us. So pleasure was connected to performance. But the identity that the Father gives to Jesus has an asymmetrical relationship between performance and pleasure. God pronounces his pleasure upon his son before his son has done anything to earn it. And so Jesus' identity isn't based on what he does or doesn't do. It's based on who he is loved by. And for the rest of the story of the Gospels, we see Jesus living out of this identity. 
first and foremost, he is the well-loved son of his father. It's not the only thing that's true about him. But before he's a teacher, before he's a savior, he's a son who knows his father loves him. So what does Jesus' identity teach us about our identity? One of the top five most influential people in my life is Luke Hendricks. Luke's preached at Antioch a number of times. He's done marriage and parenting seminars for us. He's spoken at our men's retreat. He's done some consulting for us. But before all that, Luke has been a pastor and a mentor to me in various ways for almost 20 years now. One of the things that I heard Luke say is that if there's one change he could make to the world, it would be this, that every kid would grow up hearing their dad say, you are my child who I love, and with you I'm well pleased. Luke's convinced that within a generation or two, most of the problems in our world would be solved if this were true. Like imagine a world full of kids who grow up secure in their identity. They don't need to prove their worth or their strength to anyone. They aren't controlled by the fear of failure or insignificance or rejection. They have this like deep, humble confidence that comes from knowing who they are and they're freed up to love and to serve their spouses and families and kids and churches and communities and the world. It may seem like a bold statement, but I'm prone to agree. What the world needs most is people who are secure in their identity. I think things like greed, violence, abuse, manipulation, so many forms of oppression and injustice, addiction, corruption, all these things would become rarer and rarer if the world were full of people who knew they were dearly loved and accepted by their dad. So that's Luke's theory. But what I really appreciate about Luke is that he's actually tried to live this out not just as a dad in his own family, but also as a kind of father-like mentor to lots of young pastors, including myself. So several years ago, and a few of you may have heard this story before, I was part of a group of pastors that would get together a few times a year to network and learn and encourage each other. And it's actually where I first met Ken Weitzma, who planted Antioch, uh, he and I first got to know each other at one of these gatherings. And at that time, I was a young church planter in Corvallis. I really had no idea what I was doing. I hadn't gone to Bible college. I hadn't gone to seminary. My church was kind of small and weird. And I was at this gathering in this room with a bunch of much smarter, much more accomplished, much more skilled leaders. And I found myself feeling super insecure around all these guys. Like I felt like I was kind of the JV guy compared to all of them. And so I didn't really participate much. I didn't say much. I just kind of hung back and observed. 
Now this was all happening during a season when I had met with Luke a couple of times for some pastoral counsel. And part of what he had uncovered is that for whatever reason, my lack of confidence and self-worth were due in part to the fact that I hadn't been able to really hear or receive the love and affirmation of my dad. So that's not to say that I don't have a good dad. I do, I have a wonderful dad who I love. He loves me, he's proud of me, he's pleased with me. He's even spoken these exact words over me. But for whatever reason, at that point, at that season of my life, the coins just weren't dropping. And so I spent much of my life crippled by insecurity that I'm not smart enough, talented enough, educated enough, successful enough. And so I took all that insecurity and kind of parlayed it into this goofball identity. Kind of the young, dumb, fun, punk rock guy who liked to have a good time. But it was at one of these pastor's gatherings, as I was hanging back as a spectator, throughout the course of that weekend, on at least three different occasions in a group setting, Luke Hendricks stood up and interjected in the conversation saying something like, you know who is really good at this? Pete Kelly. Or do you know who you guys should talk to to learn more about this? Pete Kelly. Or do you know who I think does this better than anyone I know? Pete Kelly. What was he doing? He was publicly affirming me. He was imparting to me an identity that said, I belong here. And the great thing is that ever since that day, I haven't struggled with identity or insecurity one time. No, of course, it's an ongoing journey. But do you see what an amazing gift Luke gave to me that day? Every single human, including Jesus himself, comes into the world with a hole that can only be filled by the love and affirmation of our Father. And for those of us who are fortunate enough to have had earthly fathers that named us as their beloved, we've been given a great gift. They've shown us something of what our Heavenly Father is like. But the truth is, even the world's best dad can't fill that hole in us. God is our everlasting Father and the only one whose love and affirmation are strong enough to build our life on. And so I've got a couple of reflection questions for you to consider today as it relates to your own story and identity. First, just think about this. Do you feel like you received a grounding love and affirmation from your father, your dad? And how has that experience or lack thereof shaped your life and your sense of identity? Second, if you have kids, what would it look like for you to impart your love and pleasure to them? Or in other words, do your kids know not only that you love them, but also that you like them? 
So I've learned that each of my kids receives my pleasure in different ways. I tell my kids that I love them every single day, but I also regularly tell them that I like them a lot. And when I tell them that I like them, each one of them has kind of their own way of responding. Emma will usually say, thanks. Mo will say, I like you too. And Myla will say, why? Or in other words, do go on. Again, these family relationships aren't the ultimate fulfillment of these needs for us, but they can serve as an incredibly powerful experience of the heart of God and help us become people who are able to both give and receive the love of Christ. And one final question to consider. A lot of us have heard these ideas our entire lives. Like maybe one of the very first things we learned was that Jesus loves me. And yet, it's like, even though we know it, we still don't believe it. Why is it so hard? What keeps us from really receiving our identity from God? And the reason is because there is an ongoing battle for the naming rights of our souls. And we have all kinds of temptations or false identities we cling to instead. Henry Nouwen suggests that there are three lies that we are prone to believe when it comes to our identity. The first is that I am what I do. My identity is based on what I accomplish. I got a 4.0, I was the starting quarterback, I got a promotion, I traveled the world, I am someone who serves other people, I am what I do. Second lie is, I am what I have. My identity is based on what I possess. I have a beautiful wife, I have a nice car, I have an impressive portfolio, I have lots of friends. And the third lie is, that I am what other people think and say about me. My identity is based on the impression that I make, the way people see me as successful, funny, smart, kind, spiritual, whatever it is. So church, my invitation to you this morning is to take the courageous step of asking the Holy Spirit to show you which of these three lies you're believing. Or to show you who it is that you have given naming rights of your soul to. Because what I've learned is that when it comes to naming your false identities, there is no magic bullet, there is no instant fix. But you're either in recovery or denial. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is God's son and we are in him. So our identity isn't based on what we do or what we have or what others think or say about us. Our identity isn't based on our own work or our own record, including our ability to discover and live out of our true identity, but rather we have been made one with Christ Jesus. 
united with him so that he's in us and we are him. What's true about him is now true about us. Which raises the question that Paul would later ask in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism in death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Antioch, I would encourage you this week to create space to receive the love of God. Whatever that looks like for you. The best place to go, wherever it is that you feel loved by God. Spend time there this week. I love you, and I like you a lot. Peace.